Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Anjana Rijan, Chief Technology Officer at Polaris, a non-governmental organization that fights human sex and labor trafficking. We talk about Polaris's historic mission and accomplishments and how Anjana, as chief technologist, is updating that mission to attack the rising wave of online exploitation of vulnerable individuals and groups. I hope you find the podcast informative and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's my great pleasure today to be speaking with Ajana Rajan. Ajana is the Chief Technology Officer for Polaris, a group that ACAMS has long had a connection to. Welcome, first of all. Thanks so much for having me, Kieran. Just tell me a little bit about Polaris for those who haven't listened in before to other interviews or been at the conferences. And I guess more particularly, you have this whole technology side, and that's fascinating. And so tell me about Polaris and the technology side of things. Yeah, sure thing. So um, Polaris is a nonpartisan NGO that works to end sex and labor trafficking and restore freedom to survivors. And our mission is ultimately to create a world where the powerful cannot exploit the vulnerable for profit. And, you know, we've been around since the very beginning of the anti-trafficking movement, and we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. And our approach to fighting trafficking is threefold. First, we're survivor-centered. Second, we're justice and equity focused. And third, we're technology enabled, which is really where my work comes in. The flagship work we're probably best known for is operating the National Human Trafficking Hotline which we do in a cooperative agreement with the Department of Health and Human Services. And for over a decade, we've responded to more than 340,000 signals. We've identified 74,000 cases of trafficking and assisted over 30,000 victims and survivors. And as a result of this work, we've actually generated the single largest data set on human trafficking in North America. Anjana, can you give me like a real quick thumbnail for people out there to understand what the data set means in terms of concretely how you can identify a particular type of trafficking or whatever so that people understand how the data set and how valuable it is? Yeah, sure. So we like to always disclaim that the data set coming from the National Human Trafficking Hotline is not a prevalent study. It doesn't measure how much human trafficking there is in the United States. It just tells us who is calling the hotline. But what we do make sure we evaluate is whether or not there is forced fraud or coercion being described by a potential victim. And so from there, we use our in-house expertise to really understand what the data is telling us and to really make sure that when we take these calls, we're learning about how trafficking is actually happening and who it's happening to. So speaking of how trafficking is actually happening and uh, who it's happening to, obviously with COVID-19, payments, all sorts of financial dealings have gone online. But I mean, so has sex trafficking and other types of exploitation of vulnerable individuals, I think. And can you tell me, you know, that's obviously a great place for your expertise as chief technologist about what COVID-19 has meant and what you're seeing out there? Yeah, you know, one of the consistent truths about human trafficking is that it's profoundly adaptable. You know, if you shut down 
one venue, the traffickers will find a new one. And wherever there are vulnerable people and communities, there will be someone who finds a way to exploit them. So yes, you're absolutely right. Technology has impacted how trafficking happens in the pandemic. And our latest data shows that online recruitment into trafficking situations increased by 22%, which is really significant. And during the lockdowns, recruitment of victims from more common sites like strip clubs and foster homes and schools you know, understandably went down drastically, while the internet was reported as a top recruitment location for all forms of sex and labor trafficking. What was most notable in our analysis was that Facebook and Instagram specifically were the primary methods of trafficking recruitment in 2020. There was a 125% increase in reports of recruitment on Facebook over the previous year and a 95% increase on Instagram. So to me, as a CTO, what this data makes me think a lot about is the business of human trafficking. And a few years ago, Polaris wrote a report called The Typology of Modern Slavery. And in this report, we identified 25 business models of sex and labor trafficking, which just goes to show how trafficking happens in plain sight in this country. And so it's really easy to see that when a technology becomes deeply embedded in our economy, it naturally becomes the medium in which human trafficking happens. And that's what our data is showing. You know, the recruitment of victims happens online. The marketplace for exploitation happens online. The profits earned for this crime are exchanged online. And so that's the bad news. But the opportunity this presents, though, is that technology can and should be used to fight human trafficking at scale. And so that's really what makes my job so interesting is being able to take a piece of technology that's been weaponized against the victim and repurpose it to restore their freedom and their power. I know that you are a cryptographer, and while I am sometimes confused what that exactly means, I'm sure you can make <laughs> it clear in the course of answering this question. You mentioned you brought in cryptocurrency, you've talked about the web, and we're talking about this whole new idea of the web, Web3. I think for those of us that are not as technically savvy, we're just starting to hear about Web3. But tell me a little bit about where we're going with how everything is going to be internet, I suppose, in a way, and how that affects human trafficking. You know, the internet of today is currently in its second generation, which we call Web2 or, or Web2.0. And Web2 is a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, on one hand, it's obviously driven transformative innovation, and, and that's clearly, you know, benefited society. But on the other hand, it's been this conduit for some of the darkest sides of human behavior. And we've seen that over the past few years. We've seen Web2 platforms play a role in enabling a rise in some really bad things like human trafficking, disinformation, genocide, violent extremism, just to name a few. And so I've been thinking about this a lot, and to me, the root cause of these problems, particularly as it pertains to human trafficking, is systemic. And at its core, it's the result of a fundamentally flawed internet architecture and broken incentive structures that enable the powerful to exploit the vulnerable for profit. So while all of this has been happening, a third generation of the internet has been emerging, and, and we call that Web3. And this is built on principles of decentralization and transparency and cryptography, which is just simply the study of secure communications and encryption. This goes way beyond just cryptocurrency and decentralized finance. It's actually about rethinking the entire internet economy. And unsurprisingly, this has introduced a pretty fraught and partisan debate on whether or not Web3 is good or bad. And so 
you know, Web3 advocates feel optimistic that this new internet architecture is going to put power back into the hands of the people, while Web3 critics are skeptical that this is, you know, nothing more than an empty Ponzi scheme used by criminals. And so where does Polaris stand on this issue? So as a cryptographer, you know, I largely believe in the potential of Web3 to help restore economic justice to victims and survivors, because I think a big part of being survivor-centered means protecting their privacy and empowering them with autonomy. And I do think that cryptography is a very values-aligned technology. But as a human trafficking expert, I also think that Web3 only offers the possibility, not the guarantee of an open and equal society. You know, I don't think it yet protects the most vulnerable people in our communities. And those include people who have suffered from sexual abuse, labor exploitation, systemic racial discrimination, and like other forms of violence. And what's really important to remember here is that survivors of these forms of trauma have always faced and will continue to face challenges to restoring their freedom and holding their perpetrators accountable for their crimes. And so even as you know these new Web3 technologies emerge, there is a high risk that exploitation and abuse will persist unless we intentionally design the technologies to protect them from the jump. So what really excites me about all of this is that if we can combine a deep understanding of human rights with a technical expertise on cryptography, we actually can build this in the right way. And if we do this, it can actually bridge the gap on these two seemingly dichotomous goals. One goal being that it can protect civil rights and strengthen our democracy. If we build this correctly, Web3 can increase our privacy and security of our data. It can create broader inclusion and trust in the global economy and create an opportunity to shift power back to the participants of a democratic society. The second goal being it can protect our national security and help us fight crime. So if we build this correctly, Web3 can serve as a barrier that blocks authoritarian regimes and criminal actors from weaponizing Web3 technologies to oppress and abuse others. And this actually will keep those malicious factions operating in the internet of the past, which can then widen the future competitive advantage for American prosperity and security. And so I realized that all of this is a very lofty vision, um, but that's really what's kind of inspiring our current work at Polaris right now. And we realize that we're in this kind of unique position to use our expertise on both human trafficking and applied cryptography to shape the future of this emerging technology, both in how it's built, but also how it's regulated to make sure that it's protecting and empowering victims and survivors. I think in a way that's where our conversation began. Hearing you speak at a roundtable about how we should design, how Web3 should work so that it isn't a matter of just the same power players controlling things. And I think I think there's a, a, a lot of talk out of Silicon Valley about how this will be a revolution and empower everybody. I think there's a paper that you're working on that talks about including the points of view of survivors of human trafficking and other vulnerable parties that may not automatically do well in the Web3 world unless their interests are taken into account. And maybe you could tell me a little bit about that paper and everything. Yeah, you know, it's still a work in progress and we're actually pretty keen on collaborating with experts across the private and public sector and we're hoping to publish this soon. But, you know, the overall thesis of the paper basically says that the architecture of Web3 is an urgent human rights imperative because it will dictate who will hold social, political and economic power in the near future and who will not. And even though we're still in the very early days of Web3, 
there's a really high sense of urgency for us because whoever gets there first is going to make the rules. And so we want to help make sure that vulnerable people have power in Web3 so that they cannot be exploited or abused in the first place. And so the paper has three chapters focused on three themes, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and financial systems. And that is intentionally modeled after our 10-year vision to combat human trafficking, which we call the big fights, which aims to prevent victimization before it happens. And so in each chapter, we take a look at a specific Web3 component, and we do sort of a game theory thought experiment of how this technology could be used with both benevolence and malice. And from there, we put forward a design principle on how we can maximize good while minimizing bad. And the chapter ends with a proposed cryptographic solution on how one might actually build this. And you know, the reason we think human trafficking can be an inductive proof for like all other human rights issues is because human trafficking is really complex it's really pervasive and it's historically nonpartisan. So if we can design Web3 for this particular vulnerable population, you know, then we can scale this to other issues like terrorism, climate change, gender-based violence, public health, election security, you know, and so on. And so that's kind of what excites us about getting this paper out. So, you know, you said there's three chapters and tell me, for instance, maybe there's some particular, you know, wisdom or insight that you can share now. Uh, what about with regard to NFTs fit into this, which is kind of all the buzz is about NFTs? Yeah, so our first chapter focuses on sex trafficking. The Web3 component that we analyze is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. The design principle we propose is a concept we call ownership with consent. And the cryptographic solution to build this uses a method called threshold signature schemes. So what is an NFT, right? An NFT uses smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain, which is just a fancy way of saying writing a computer program. And this represents ownership of unique items. And the most common applications we've seen of NFTs are digital media. So things like photos and videos and music. And when you think about Web2, you know, the internet we currently are using, the content created online is owned and monetized by the technology platform that distributes it, right? So if you post a reel on Instagram, it's, it's Meta who actually profits and owns that. And this puts the content creator at a disadvantage because they can never really fully own or fully profit from their own creations. And so that's what's making people excited about NFTs, right? And, and there's two reasons for that. First, they are compatible across any application which means that it's really shifting power away from the distributor and back to the creator. And second, they have this native cryptocurrency, in, in this case, Ethereum, that's built in that drives monetary value. But even without this middleman platform controlling the distribution, the concept of digital ownership is still really complicated. Like, should a photo be owned by the person who took the photo or the person who is a subject of the photo? Many of us would agree that the subject should also share in the ownership and profits of their own image. And we've actually seen this conflict manifest in real life many, many times. You know, a few years ago, an artist named Richard Prince appropriated a photo of the supermodel Emily Ratajkowski and used one of her Instagram posts without her permission and presumably made a lot of money off of it. And so in response, Emily created an NFT of her own portrait and auctioned it at Christie's as a way of kind of reclaiming financial power over her body. And people love talking about this anecdote of why NFTs can be really empowering. And it certainly is. But let's like 
play this thought experiment from the other side. You know, what if Richard Prince had created this NFT first? You know, if he had, it would have been nearly impossible for Radikowski to reclaim her image because the blockchain would have proven Prince's immutable ownership and protected his royalties. And, you know, this to me underscores the biggest flaw in NFTs right now. They reward the fastest mover, not necessarily the subject of the digital asset. And so if you kind of pull this thread further, it's not hard to see why this could be very problematic for future victims of sex trafficking. And so the question we pose in the paper asks, you know, what if we could architect NFTs in a way such that both the creator and the subject must mutually consent in order for photos and videos to be monetized? And that's what we're solving for. I won't get into the nitty gritty of the cryptography, but essentially the idea is for any NFT platform to verify the subject's identity in the photo using the blockchain's consensus voting protocol. Then using something we call a Shamir secret sharing scheme, they can deconstruct the photo's key into shares and give a share to the creator and the subjects. And then finally require all parties to enter their signatures in order for the key to be reconstructed which means that the photo can only be posted if all parties consent. And so I'm, I'm obviously simplifying this a lot, but the paper goes into that math. And what I'm really excited about is that this doesn't fight the innovation, it embraces the innovation in order to protect the vulnerable. And so if we can work with Silicon Valley to implement this and work with regulators to figure out how to properly regulate this, it could prevent child sexual abuse material or non-consensual illicit images from even getting on these internet platforms in the first place. And that to me is like fundamentally game-changing and exciting. Well, that is exciting. And I think it also points out the great need that there is for technologists like yourself to be working in the nonprofit sector, just to even give a more level playing field for uh, the public at large in terms of where we go with Web3. And that leads me to ask, you know, is there anything in summing up the kind of role that you have and what you would say to others out there with your kinds of skills about working for not-for-profits and the importance of this and where we're going in terms of social justice with regard to technology? Yeah, well, I will do my shameless plug. Uh, you know, one way to help is by joining our team. Um, we're actively hiring across a range of roles from engineering to data science to digital marketing and hotline advocates. So if you're interested in applying, go to polarisproject.org slash careers just to see our job postings. Another shameless plug is that you can be part of this movement through your financial support. You know, like I mentioned earlier, human trafficking is a financial crime um, and shifting power and money back into the hands of survivors is how we restore power back to them. And in light of all this work we're doing on Web3, we recently started to accept cryptocurrency donations so that we can not only use those funds to serve victims and survivors directly, but to also study and understand this technology and economy firsthand. So you can go to polarisproject.org slash crypto to contribute. But I think, you know, even if those are not things that you're able to do, I think one thing to realize is that human trafficking is what happens when all systems break down. It's the end result of inequity and injustice that makes people vulnerable in the first place. And so as we think about fighting human trafficking, we should realize that it's actually deeply connected to so many other issues. And so recognizing that as we fight for equality and justice, 
for the vulnerable in any form that is contributing to the fight. And so anyone who's working towards those goals is really doing a great thing for victims and survivors. Well, Anjana, you're certainly doing a great thing for victims and survivors. Thank you for the work that you do. Thanks to all the folks at Polaris. And thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Anjana Rijan, Chief Technology Officer at Polaris. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.